Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The C.D. Howe Institute warns the new NAFTA, the USMCA if you're American, or the CUSMA if you're Canadian, will require major adjustments in the auto sector, and big money is at stake. In 2017 alone, Canada exported $62 billion worth of vehicles and parts to the U.S. Under the New Deal, the rules of origin that will be applied to vehicles and their parts are considerably more stringent and confusing than under NAFTA. And what of the Trump administration's move to roll back emissions and fuel economy standards Canada has mimicked since California blazed the trail on fighting climate change? The Institute has a solution for that, too. In this edition of the C.D. Howe Institute podcast, our 50-year love affair with the automobile continues. I had a chance to sit down with 50-year veteran auto analyst Dennis DeRosier and veteran trade lawyer John Johnson, the author of the report titled Bumper to Bumper, Will the CUSMA Rules of Origin Make America's Auto Industry Great Again? Johnson points out that unlike NAFTA, CUSMA is not a free trade deal. It's a managed trade deal. I think it's significant and intentional that the words free and trade do not appear in the title, like in NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. The labor value content requirement is clearly a performance requirement, and that is an indice of managed trade, as is the steel and aluminum purchase requirement. So you also point out that there are also multiple categories of parts for different categories of vehicles with varying regional value requirements depending on what the end use of that part is. And I can only imagine that increases the complexity. It does increase the complexity. I can't tell you, and I don't know how much of a problem that is, but it makes things more complicated. Regional value content thresholds mean 66% of a vehicle will have to be North American made by January 2020, or whenever Washington finalizes the deal. The year after, 69%, then 72%. And three years after the deal comes into force, one out of every $4 worth of automobile must be made on this continent. And that's just for the first six of eight categories of vehicles. Heavy trucks get longer and lower requirements. DeRosier points out the question becomes, what constitutes made in North America? When you actually were to tear apart a vehicle into its three or 4,000 pieces and look at the value of one of those pieces added up, it has to, and the new rules is going to be essentially 75%. But then what about the transmission that has a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit from China and a little bit from Japan? Uh, do you break it down? And this is the complexity of the new one. Uh, under the previous agreements, there was roll-up clauses where as long as it hit a certain level, you counted all of it as North American Right, like a piston could be made outside of North America, but because it was embedded in the engine itself, that roll-up included... A more likely scenario was the piston was made inside North America, but it may use Japanese steel, or there may have been some special uh, technology uh, associated with it that was brought in from overseas and incorporated into a North American-built piston. And it was rolled up to give 100%. And they've really changed that and made it stunningly complex, stunningly complex. It actually, a little bit of history here, I go back to auto pack days, uh, was one of the biggest issues the vehicle companies had in 1965 of how do we track stuff going across the border. And the Canadian government passed an order in council in 1965 for the date of 1509. 
And as long as they wrote 1965-1509 on any automotive do uh, products coming across the border, it was just waved through. Uh, and they didn't have to deal with all of the paperwork side of it. Yeah. You pointed out, though, um, the, the two requirements that are unprecedented here, dealing with the steel and aluminum uh, purchase requirement and the labor value content requirement. Even the U.S. International Trade Commission said that, you know, this is not going to help in the long run because it's going to, uh, while increase employment, it's going to shrink the number of vehicles produced and the demand for those vehicles as well. Well, that's a trade-off. And, and the U.S. was counting on cranking up the value content requirements for vehicles and what they called core parts and also other parts as well would increase uh, employment in the U.S. The, the offsetting thing is that those things, together with the steel and aluminum purchase requirement, the labor value contour requirement, increase cost. Now, the question is, which trumps which? Um, so you have a, a greater incentive to, say, buy steel in the United States. But on the other hand, the steel you buy in the United States will be more expensive, and that will feed into the price of the car. It depends on how elastic the demand for vehicles is. And that's the issue. You may actually see uh, the supply chain evolve a little bit where there's more U.S. jobs, but the size of the pie shrinks. And it may have a bigger piece, but, the, but it's of a smaller pie. And uh, the biggest benefit that we've had from first the Auto Pact in 1965 and FTA and then uh, NAFTA was it allowed the markets to operate efficiently. There's been virtually no inflation in vehicles for pushing 15 to 20 years, or it's been certainly under 1%. It's been one of the most efficient industries out there. And that's allowed the North American markets to go from, you go back to 1965 days, and it was 10 to 12 million uh, uh, units, North America, Canada, US, Mexico. And now it's north of 20 million, even though we're in a little bit of a cyclical dip right now. I think one category, general category of vehicle that there's a real issues with are small vehicles because the profit margins are low. And that's one reason Mexico has been, has attracted production of smaller vehicles. If you increase the cost, fewer people will buy. If fewer people buy, that has all kinds of knock-on effects on employment by the employment in production facilities as well as um, uh, the aftermarket. So as to how all that will play out, we don't know. Uh, the U.S., obviously the USTR and Mr. Lighthizer were counting on the increased, the, the, the resulting increased need to use U.S., at least North American produced stuff, and that sort of feeds into U.S. produced stuff. They were counting that on that winning out. On the other hand, if the higher prices win out, these will cause, these will be a loser rather than a winner for the U.S. Every vehicle must have at least 70% of its steel and aluminum made in Canada, the U.S., or Mexico. And in a move seen as an attempt to apply Canada's social values on Mexico, we push to require 30% of the vehicle be produced by someone making at least $16 an hour. 40% within three years. You touched on the labor value content requirement as well, and that Canada 
was sort of instrumental in using that as a, would you call it a carrot, uh, to, to get some of those content restrictions lifted? I think, I don't know, I don't know that how the dynamics resulted. I, the Canadians obviously wanted to get that 50% rule off the table, which is pretty much a deal breaker. And I guess that's what they decided on. They thought that the U.S. would go for it, which obviously they did. I don't, I don't know what the, I don't know what the mechanics of the negotiations were. But Canada, as far as I understand, the idea originated with them again, probably as a way of getting that fifty percent U.S. content requirement off the table. So now we're at a point where a certain percentage of a vehicle has to be produced by someone making at least 16 U.S. dollars an hour? Yes, it, it's, it's needless to say more complicated than that. And they're, they're, it, it's, it, it's not across the board. It only requires to a certain percentage of the content. Right, it um, starts at 30% yeah. of the content. Yeah, well, it's, it, 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 it ratchets up. And I don't think Canadian producers would have difficulty meeting it, but... The thing that is critical is that it be capable of being administered by the people who have to administer it, namely the producers and namely the people at producers who, who, who are charged or who are tasked with uh, uh, monitoring compliance with rules of origin and w with the labor value content requirement. Yeah, and in, I don't know the exact average wage in Mexico, but it's not uncommon to have single-digit wages. Yeah in Mexico, and obviously you're forcing them, them to count as Mexico, as North American content of a $16 wage, which is obviously going to increase the cost of the component, and that's protection. Mm -hmm. That's the inefficiencies that come in to an agreement like this. And then who's going to pay, say a, a plant was paying $9 and now they're paying $16, who's going to pay that extra $7 an hour? It's the consumer. So does the consumer end up paying more or does the production just shift into the United States or Canada? Well, the, and this is that it changes some of the production uh, allocation and or uh, you enter it as a non-USMCA component. And then you so, get dinged. And then you get dinged. And dinging in the United States is 2.5%. And so there's companies, I'm sure, that have, you know, PhD mathematicians working through all the details saying, is it cheaper just to pay the duty uh, or to do what's required to meet the rules. Um, and believe me, sometimes the paperwork side is as expensive as an increase in labor costs or the duty or whatever. Uh, you know, a lot of people can be involved in these kinds of things. What has to be done is that all that has to be pulled together so that you, as the person in charge of making sure that your company complies with CUSMA requirements, um, gets it right, and doesn't have some overzealous U.S. customs auditor come along four years later and say, you're offside, please uh, write a check to uh, customs for X dollars, which would be a high amount. So I, I, it, it concerns me making it, I don't like the concept, but that doesn't matter. The key thing is to make it administratively workable. And that same, same thing goes for the steel and aluminum requirement as well. Yeah, it is very much managed. Uh, but any time you get away from free flow of goods, your managing takes people to manage it and take resources to figure it out. And, and then whoever is making those decisions, are they making 
it's a person making a decision in terms of go here, there, or whatever. It's not the market. And the market is ruthlessly efficient. You know, Adam Smith and his invisible hand wins every time. Uh, and so you're taking the Adam Smith uh, out of the equation and substituting uh, sometimes a government or sometimes an organization into it, and they're going to obviously be biased and not operate efficiently. You give a, an interesting example in your report about a uh, rear view mirror, how the glass is really the critical component that makes that the defined product. Sure, there is a lot of tech that goes on behind it. There's a lot of plastic. There's a lot of other stuff associated with it. But the idea behind the rules of origin are tied to what the actual product ultimately is supposed to be. Yeah, the, the, it, it all goes back to the fact that we're dealing, we have a, we're dealing with a free trade agreement, creating a free trade area as distinct from a customs union. With a customs union, the, the countries, the, the parties to the customs union, harmonize their border measures. So you have a good enter France, the EU uh, policy is applied to that good, and then the good can circulate throughout the EU without any further ado. With a free trade area, each party retains its own policy towards non-parties. So consequently, the US, the, the US has one policy, we have another policy. A classic, take the example of Cuba. Cuban goods, we have one policy. Actually, we, we give them a general preferential tariff break. Uh, in the U.S., you can't get them in the country for the most part. Totally different policies. Customs union would not be possible. You'd have to harmonize all of that. So anyway, the, the, the rules of origin problem then becomes this. You have something enter Canada from, say, Japan. Well, you can't expect it to go across the border into the U.S. as is or only lightly changed. The question is, how much has to be done to that input from Japan so that it can be considered regional or NAFTA compliant or USMCA compliant so that the Americans will not charge a duty on it? That's the same with us. That's why the rules of origin are there. And there's two fundamental approaches to that. Number one, you can require substantial transformation, which again, there, with the mirror example, the glass is regarded as being critical to the mirror, the rest of the stuff peripheral. So you can have the frame come from anywhere and you don't worry about it, but the glass has to be North American. That's the thinking. And the, but the other way to do it is just add value to it until you reach a certain threshold or combine the two with both a, a tariff classification change requirement and a meeting of value content requirement. In the point you're making here is that we've added a remarkable amount of complexity to this process. Oh yes, and and again, you, you with the steel and aluminum. Yes, you, you you use steel and aluminum to produce a car, but essentially what you have to do is you have to go through all these comply with rules of origin to get your stuff across the border duty free, and then added on top of that, you've got a totally a requirement this totally divorced from individual goods. It's an added thing that you have to do in order to get your goods across the border uh, duty-free. So if at least 70% of the vehicle producers' purchases of steel and aluminum have to be in North America, That's correct. what does that mean for a Canadian auto producer 
who is trying to keep track of where all of the widgets that go into that vehicle come from. What has to be done is that regime has to be transformed into something that when you administer it, there is no question about what evidence you have to obtain and so on. It can't be left up in the air. It has to be, it has to be uh, codified. One of the significant advantages with the rules of origin set out in the CUSMA and NAFTA is that the, in NAFTA, the three parties bought into the con concept of harmonizing the regulations. So NAFTA provided for uniform regulations so that the regulations that bring brought the NAFTA rules of origin into effect are identical as among the three countries, subject only to minor changes in tariff nomenclature because there's some variation there. The negotiators in the, of the CUSMA bought into that concept. I think that's really important because I think it's inevitable, and it's easy to criticize negotiators for coming up with stuff that is vague or, or uh, um, unclear and so on. That's to be expected because these are not negotiated with a view to making it administratively feasible. They're negotiated with a view to getting a deal done. And a split second in time, we agree to this, and there it is. Um, the last thing you want to do is open up a can of worms exactly. trying to clarify. So light-duty vehicles, we talk about that, that idea of a, a part being made somewhere else and being incorporated into a larger part that may be made in North America or vice but versa. Being incorporated into yet another larger part, and it's not uncommon to have things cross a border two or three or four times before it ends up into a vehicle. Right, I was told it was as many as nine or 11 times. There are, that's a bit of an exaggeration in terms of the quantity. There are situations where it can be nine, 10, 11 times, but it's a relatively small percent. And every time it crosses the border, you end up with complexity of paperwork and tracking and things like that. Right, that's that's the tracing we're talking about and that the, the, that the industry uses as a term. And light-duty vehicles have different tracing rules versus the heavy-duty ones. When it comes to the light-duty tracing, that had been dropped, as I understand it, from this new trade agreement, uh, but uh, increased substantially the regional value uh, co uh, content thresholds related to passenger vehicles and light trucks as well. So there has to be more North America in one of those light vehicles, even though we're not digging into the widget to find out what sub-widgets were made elsewhere. Yeah, ex exactly. And this adds to the, it tells you just how complex it is. Even you and I, who, who I've read the reports and, you know, was involved in following it very closely. Uh, and I've been involved with trade issues in the auto sector going back to my first paper on this was in 1969. So I literally got 50 years of following this. As I've got followed the USMCA, I got lost on occasion. I kind of go, and then the automobile is fundamentally changed. You think of the autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles and there's components in a vehicle. Uh, everything is classified and there's components in current vehicles that have never even been dreamt of even back in 19, the 1990s. Uh, and so how do you handle them? And they're trying to keep up with all of this stuff. They have the opportunity to do this, particularly, for example, the labor value content requirement and the steel and aluminum purchase requirement. They can straighten out a lot of this stuff in the uniform regulations and make it so that the auto industry 
set knows exactly what they have to do so that they are not going to get exposed to an audit years later because the rule was vague and some U.S. Customs official decided to take an aggressive stance. Well, back to that can of worms issue, the idea that there are elements within this CUSMA agreement that are deliberately left vague. This is why you and your report are advising North American automotive producers to actively involve themselves in the uniform regulations process. So there is still opportunity within Canada to have some wiggle room within this document. You're not going to change the substance. You're not going to change, you know, if a 75% requirement is a 75% and so on and so on. There are a number of drafting things that have to be fixed, and that's understandable. And then with the rather, when you say deliberately left vague, I don't think they're deliberately left vague. I think they were sort of scrambling to get them together. And again, remember, the negotiating environment is tense, and essentially the the idea is to get a deal, even if the deal may not make eminent sense, you got a deal, so therefore you, this, so you end up with a lot of vague provisions. I don't think that's intentional. I think it just it just comes out of the process and the atmosphere in, in within which the the negotiations took place. Again, tense, politicized, all kinds of press wanting to know, and so on and so on. And so this is an opportunity to fix all of that. One thing, by the way, that there's one thing that's unique. Well. Rules of origin. On the one hand, it's one part of a free trade agreement that, ha- yeah, free trade agreement that has to be administered on a daily basis. It's a sort of a question that every time something crosses a border, are you going to claim CUSMA treatment? If so, what do you have to do to do that? So it's it's the part of the agreement that is constantly being applied. On the other hand. With the, you've got the opportunity to clarify many things in the uniform regulations. You don't have to change the substance of the agreement, but you can say, well, what did you really mean by this? What, did, what does the producer have to do to establish that it's complied with the labor value content requirements? Same with the steel and so on. The auto parts industry feels that this is a much better deal than what they had under NAFTA. Is this broadly for the Canadian automotive industry a better deal than NAFTA? It's different. Um, the, the one thing that NAFTA had was this whole tracing idea. And the tracing idea was, just as I've touched on, it, it, was, it was very convoluted. And it, it all came, came, it came from the, the concern that Honda and Toyota had no, sorry, that the big three had that Honda and Toyota were pumping too much Japanese-made stuff into their cars. So the idea was, well, you have this engine. The engine under the applicable rule of origin is originating, so its value doesn't count against you. But the idea with tracing then, well, what about all the uh, foreign stuff, in other words, non-NAFTA stuff, that's in that engine, like the piston rods or the whatever. So their idea was you have this tracing list, that list tariff provisions for about 90% of the stuff you need to make a car, and you have to go back to when it entered the country. So it it created a far more complicated regime. Now, parts people, as were the assemblers, affected by that, and they would have to go through their exercise, and they would have to obtain certain information that they would pass on to their customers and so on. 
more complex information than it would exist under the CUSMA. So in that sense, the CUSMA is a bonus. Now they've retained tracing for a small category, a small category of vehicles for reasons I don't understand, but that's that's an aside. But generally speaking, the 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 way that the rules of origin work generally and under the CUSMA is that you're concerned about the value of non-originating materials. Well, the that these are non-originating materials that you use as an input, you buy. So you, you can get the value of them because you know what it is because you paid for it. It's all in your records. You don't have to trace through. Uh, you don't have to chase after values or make up or use some second best or third best or so on value. So from that sense, to get rid of that complex system, um, the whole industry is better off. Um, I, I always thought it was a crazy idea, and fortunately so did Mr. Lighthizer. <laughs> what does the auto industry look like in 2023 when 40% of a vehicle has to be made by someone making at least 16 bucks an hour? I don't think a lot different. I think there'll be... Uh, Mexico has been on fire and it's just been exploding, both their market and production. Um, I, I've been around this industry for 50 years. And there was a day and age where Mexico produced two, three hundred thousand vehicles, and Canada is producing a million, two million, four. Now Mexico is pushing three million. Canada's, uh, with the closings in Canada that have been announced, going to be probably under two million, and so bigger than Canada. Their market is bigger than Canada, um, and I suspect at the end of the day, this much of this is targeted at Mexico. It slows the Mexico down. I don't think it reverses it, but they've been growing double digit or high single digit and it slows them down quite a bit. Uh, Canada gets caught in that. I don't see uh, very many issues on the market side in Canada, but on the production side, we're seeing it. It was a day and age where we had 3 million units of production fairly consistently, 2.8 to 3.1, 3.2. We're now down to, well, this year was a good year, that, or last year was, and it was 2.2 or 2.3, still a million units less. We know the GM plant is closing. We know that there's other plants that are being skinnied up, and threatened in Canada. Uh, we're willowing out our assembly sector. Uh, the parts sector less so in that the parts sector exports 85% of what it does to the U.S. And other than the complexity and some of the potential issues with, uh, with the new trade agreement, the Canadian parts sector uh, should be able to do okay. But I don't see long-term, I don't see any long-term growth in the Canadian manuf um, vehicle manufacturing side. I also don't see it becoming Australia where they have no assembly sector left. It's gone or will be gone. Uh, but we slowly willow down. I'm not sure. My own theory is that politically, uh, well, we have five assembly companies in Canada, GM, Ford, Chrysler, Honda, and Toyota. And politically, it would be near impossible for them to leave now. And some of them still have two plans. So my own theory is that, look how might be a decade, might be 15 years, that we end up with five assembly plants in Canada, one by GM, Ford, Chrysler, Honda, and Toyota. And anybody over and above that, so Honda has two, Toyota has two, GM will be down to one. Uh, Ford has got just the one, Chrysler has two. 
And so we ultimately uh, skinny up a little bit. We'd end up down into the million to million five vehicles in Canada. It sounds like the increased costs associated with compliance will ultimately be passed on to the consumer, which raises the value of a cost of a vehicle yeah. at, the, at the dealership lot, which means fewer of those vehicles are going to end up rolling off. Yes, that's a problem. And that, that it, how much of a problem it is, again, Increasing content, increasing the requirement for North American content means that more stuff has to be sourced in North America, we the United States. Well, we we all three countries, but that that's so. Therefore, you hope that more people will be employed as a result. The downside of that, of course, is going to cost more. The increased cost will uh, uh, diminish the number sold. It's just a question of by how much. And I think people, particularly with small cars, are price sensitive. But again, that, that's, that's an economic question, the elasticity of demand and so on and so on. I think with large cars, people don't care if they're paying $150,000, $200,000 car. The price is not the point. When you're paying $20,000 for a car, it is. John Johnson is a former partner of Goodman's and a legal advisor with Canada's Trade Negotiation Office and a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe. He's the author of the report Bumper to Bumper. Dennis DeRosier is a 50-year veteran independent auto industry analyst and a frequent luncheon speaker at the Institute. The Institute also tackled the issue of the U.S. government's decision to dismantle the auto industry emissions and fuel economy standards pioneered by California and turned to senior research professor and director of the Center for Canadian Studies at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies for insight. Chris Sands believes Canada has an opportunity to take California's place on the world stage. Way back in 1972, when the Clean Air Act was passed by Congress, uh, there was a recognition that California had a unique set of problems. Mostly, uh, some of your listeners will remember smog around Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco. And so Congress created a waiver that said the federal government would set up standards for automotive emissions and fuel economy, but that California could set its own standards provided they were above or higher than what the federal government set. That waiver authority in the 1972 legislation is just that. It can be rescinded. And what the Trump administration proposed was to rescind that power, in part because of a feeling that California was abusing it and, uh, and making things hard for the business, for the industry. And the fact that one out of every 10 cars sold in the United States are sold in California, it gave California the ability to control the industry, really, when it came to these types of emissions regulations. Absolutely. And in the early days, I think it, it, it was generally a positive step. It helped us to move towards unleaded gasoline, um, catalytic converters, other technologies that made cars more efficient on an environmental front, but also more fuel efficient, which during the energy crises of the 70s was not a small consideration. Later on in the 1990s, California began setting goals of zero emissions or partial zero emissions. And many people think those standards in California were responsible for Toyota's effort to create uh, hybrid cars like the Toyota Prius or uh, the Nissan Leaf really came out of trying to meet California standards because although you're right, they buy California represents about 10% of the U.S. market. For the, Cal, for the Japanese companies, it's a particularly important market. They've always done much better on the West Coast. And so they drove technology forward and, and we're all better off for it. So it's your assertion that if Trump is successful in repealing the exemption that gave California the, abil the ability to make its own rules, 
that since Canada has followed along with the California rules as well, that we have two options. We can either uh, proceed with repealing our own admission standards so that there's a, a level playing field financially, or it's your suggestion that we could take another option. Absolutely. I think Canada has one thing California doesn't have, and that is sovereignty. Canada can set environmental standards, whether the Trump administration likes it or not. And in this case, by keeping those standards on the books and opening it up so that the car companies uh, try to meet the Canadian standards, possibly with some subsidies for innovation and research and development that would have to be conducted in Canada, Canada could be the driver of automotive innovation, something that the Trudeau government's been keen on, having set up an automotive and manufacturing innovation cluster in Ontario already. This is a way of giving it a, a special focus on, on the environment. And what we've seen in the past is that the car companies themselves, when they're given a, a sort of a positive incentive rather than a, a series of penalties, they tend to respond well. Uh, we used to see Ford and Chevy talking about all our cars meeting California emissions. And I think there's an opportunity here to change that to all our cars meet the Canada emission standards and in some ways make Canada the new California in terms of driving innovation on environmental performance in automobiles. But how do you accomplish that when California sells more cars than Canada sells cars? And if we had two different standards, one in the U.S. and one in Canada, that compliance would actually hurt the industry? Well, I think actually it's all in how you set the standards. California has been criticized by some people in, in the auto sector for setting standards that are above what today's technology can do. And in the car business, they are simultaneously trying to meet a whole number of, of important challenges. They've got to keep passengers safe. They have to also uh, meet with the sort of the new challenge of self-driving cars and, and how that could affect the vehicle. They're trying to find ways to achieve environmental performance goals, but at the same time, mobility goals um, for different age groups, different sizes. And it's such, such a devilishly difficult business as it is that there was criticism California was abusing its, its standard setting by setting standards above what we could do now. And what the Detroit companies, uh, largely the three big three we think of, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, had pushed back on was maybe you could set targets for us to meet, but don't emphasize the penalties, emphasize research support and university partnerships, uh, sort of positive incentives, because we want to meet those standards, but given the nature of, of the auto sector, the competitiveness of the auto sector, we want some flexibility as we go so that we don't go out of business in the process. And I think Canada is well positioned for that, always has had a very cooperative relationship with the auto companies, including the Japanese companies, uh, Korea, the Hyundai Kia conglomerate doesn't do automaking in Canada, but does buy parts in Canada. So I think the industry generally would say, well, Canada uh, by offering some positive incentives, some research and development partnerships, say with the University of Windsor, uh, West University of Western Ontario, could be a driver of positive change. And because the standards are aspirational, things that the companies want to meet but don't have to meet, I think that squares the circle so that they can still produce a car that works all over North America. And it goes back to something in that 1972 legislation, the Clean Air Act in the United States. Canada needs to set standards that are above the standards that prevail in the United States, so that by meeting the Canadian standards, you also meet the American standards as well. 
I, I recognize the carrot that you're providing here with uh, a certain cachet that comes with meeting higher emission standards and there's a, a marketing component to this you know a brand image of canada with the maple leaf and the world following that but we also know that you need a stick and if we only have aspirational goals for emissions and fuel economy standards and there are not the penalties that go with it where's the true incentive for the automotive industry to follow suit well, I think that the stick really comes from consumers themselves. Uh, it, it's a very tough business because you have so many different uh, uh, consumer wish list items that you want to meet. But what we've seen in the years since 1972 is that consumers really do value uh, environmental performance as a major uh, component of buying a car. And they'll make some trade-offs. If they're living in a rural area and they need a truck for work, they might accept lower fuel economy, but they still want it to be you know, a green truck to the extent that it can be. But by leaving it to the consumer to make those trade-offs and by certifying that a vehicle is meeting standards, not just taking what the company says, but having a, a government that does inspect and say, this really does meet our standards, I think the hope is that the consumer will be the, the stick, if you will, challenging the companies to do better, um, but giving them that margin that if, if they try to do something and it doesn't sell, then obviously there's an incentive to take a step back. It's, a, it's part of a different approach to regulation that, um, that I think governments should consider a bit more. Uh, it's not always the case that you need to punish companies, obviously when they do something bad, but punishing them for not doing enough that is good, I, I think is a perverse incentive structure. If you can instead say, we want to partner with you because this social goal is important, so we'll make some social investments, say, of taxpayer funding for research and development support or help uh, set up partnerships with public universities so that we can get some, uh, some research brains on how to solve a problem that we haven't quite got a technology for yet. Then I think you're in, you're in a space where the companies will respond well and they will make those changes, at least the best companies will. And once you start seeing things, better environmental performance being standard, in, in a one company or two companies, then you can start making it the minimum. You sort of move the minimums up behind the achievement of higher standards to sort of uh, drag the rest of the industry, the reluctant sectors, maybe the big trucks and other things uh, up to that higher standard. So uh, it is positive. It is more carrots than sticks, but I think it's, it's the kind of approach that we need to have for such a delicate sector that after all, we keep having to bail out, uh, <laughs> uh, at least in the last couple of years. All ah, right. So the next time we have to do that, maybe we need to have some more strings attached. <laughs> maybe some more strings or also think about why we have to bail them out. I had a, another paper for, uh, for a different group uh, a few years ago, and it's the auto industry struggles because it's, it's expected to, pr to produce so many social goods. And I think we've asked the companies to provide a living wage. We've in the U.S. tied health care uh, and really uh, what we call Cadillac gold-plated health benefits to uh, automotive employment. We've asked the companies to integrate the workforce to include more women and, and more uh, ethnic minorities. And we've also asked them to make greener cars and safer cars and more fuel-efficient cars. So uh, the companies have all responded, but I, I think that in some ways um, we, need to, we need to see them not as the other that we have to force to do what we want, but instead as, as a partner that is trying to meet all the demands that are placed on them. Obviously, they have a profit motive to do so. But if government sees itself as a partner, 
it's going to encourage innovation in, I think, a much more constructive way than, than with penalties. And if it doesn't work that way, then obviously you go back to sticks. But I think there's room here for Canada to take a more carroty approach. Do you see any other industry examples where this has worked? Well, I think you see it especially in sectors where, um, where you are on the cutting edge of technology. Uh, take, for example, some of the, the internet startup uh, sectors. A lot of companies are doing things that we've never seen before. And so it's not really clear how do you regulate these things because you've never seen them. Or take uh, some of the biomedical or, or even gene-based uh, research, uh, producing things that just were unimaginable not that long ago. Rather than getting ahead and saying, well, we're going to put some barriers around this and uh, have some tough questions about what you do here, instead you want to kind of let them grow and, and learn how it works and gather some data and provide some positive incentives to apply some of the breakthroughs to practical human problems, whether it's a particular focus on cancer or in the medical research area or in addressing um, birth defects uh, in the gene, genetic research area. And I think it's maybe a little bit more um, intellectually humble to approach a sector like that and say, well, we're excited to see what you can do. And once we understand it better, we'll try to set some parameters that keep you in a safe space ethically uh, so that you do have social license to continue while at the same time uh, encouraging you in areas that benefit uh, everyone, not just, uh, not just your company or your company's bottom line. Chris Sands is the director of the Center for Canadian Studies at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. For his report and Bumper to Bumper by John Johnson, visit cdhow.org. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, when innovation meets compliance, supporting Canada's regtech community. On September 11th, the Institute will host a roundtable luncheon with Tanya Blackmore, Pat Chalkos, and Stuart Davis. On September 12th, Ron Mock, the President and Chief Executive Officer of the Ontario Teachers' Pension Plan, will speak at a roundtable luncheon then. And on the 18th, Stan Magison, the Chair and Chief Executive Officer of the Alberta Securities Commission, will visit the Calgary office for a roundtable luncheon then. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thank you for subscribing. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.